transportation, in my view, is not about simply getting from A to B. It's about freedom of mobility. Welcome to Geographical Thinking. This podcast brings you interesting ideas, diverse conversations, and intriguing stories across professions and industries, all through the lens of geography. Hi, I'm your host Guan Yu. Today, we're talking about transportation, a topic that's deeply rooted in and intertwined with geographical thinking. After all, transportation is about moving people from one place to another more safely, efficiently. And with less environmental impact. This year, the pandemic has drastically changed many aspects of our life. Our travel and commute are prominent examples of that. How we travel, how frequent we travel, where do we travel, and how long we stay at our destination look totally different than last year. Our urban streetscape looks nothing like before. What does that mean for transportation planning? What are the trends? What are the thoughts that can go into it? Well, today we're having a conversation with Arif Rafiq. Arif has a background in electrical engineering. He loves traveling, food, laughter, a bit of a geek, speaking as a friend here. But most relevant of all is a transportation expert who worked globally to help organizations plan and manage. Roads, highways, and other transportation infrastructures that you and I use on a daily basis. So, welcome, Arif. Thank you, Guan.、Um, so, I I would say that one of the rules of of, of using the word geek is that it has to be self-proclaimed. <laughs> as you described, <laughs> I will self-proclaim myself as being a geek. Absolutely,、uh, but no, you're, Guan. You're a very good, very close friend of mine. So, it can come from you as well. <laughs> So as we've been like reading about transportation, there are very interesting numbers out there because the impact on transportation contrasts in different aspects of transportation itself. For example,、uh, there's a McKinsey report that comes out in June, and this is on U.S. data, I, I believe, that railroad volumes declined by 20 percent, while the last mile deliveries have surged more than 10 times over, and Right at home here, like ridership of TTC have dropped eighty five percent during the pandemic, and most of which hasn't rebounded yet. So, what are some of the trends that are out there that have caught your eyes and makes you rethink of how we're going to go forward? I think you said it really well in terms of going forward.、Um, in my world, Guan, I've heard so much about when are we going to return back to normal. As it pertains to transportation, and I think that's a flawed statement in itself. So I really like how you said it. Going forward,、um, a lot of the changes that have been happening in the transportation space have been underway long before you know our current pandemic hit. We had、um, as, as in North America, we are Canadian, and, and part of North America, we're a heavily car. Focused or personal vehicle focused society, we tend to love our cars,、um, and that's been that way for decades. Now, that's one of the reasons that our cities have built up the way they have, the way their country has expanded, the way it has, is because we're very car centric.、Um, but over the past 
decade, maybe even longer, I think it's been accelerating. Um, the, the idea that we're moving away from that car-centric society has been accelerating. We have more people who want to take transit. We have uh, younger folks. I myself, you know, I'm in my 40s. And so I was, uh, when I turned 16, one of the first things I was excited to do was get that driver's license, as many people of our generation, you know, had, had the same experience. But you look at 16 year olds today, I have nieces and nephews who are, well, one of them is 21 and has still yet to get a driver's license. So we're seeing a lot of the younger um, generations choosing not to drive because there are more alternatives. And that, that's one of the key. The alternatives are becoming more available, more accessible, more reliable, more safe to use, um, more integrated into other, tra other uh, transportation methods. So it's just becoming more common for people to use other transport. So this shift has been occurring long before the pandemic. I think if anything, the pandemic has really accelerated some of that. And that's caused us as transportation planners to start thinking about things. Um, yeah, yes, it's, it's a cliche, but outside the box, start thinking about things that um, would enable us to achieve multiple benefits from some of our changes. And, and for that, I, I can be very specific. I'm talking about some of the more recent changes that have happened. Um, maybe not so much now, but it happened a few weeks ago or a few months ago where in urban areas, restaurants were starting to expand their patios into streetscapes, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that has a multitude of effects. Of course, it reduces the ability for, for cars to travel, but it makes the city arguably more human friendly. Um, obviously, there's a function there that's necessary, and that's for social distancing for the restaurant. So they need to have more space. But that was a benefit to the restaurant in our current times. But it also provides access for people to, to walk because the sidewalks become larger, I know, arguably. We have more space for cyclists, less space for cars, but that's okay. If more people are, are using alternative modes of transport, then then those other alternatives that have spread it up are going to become more, more usable, more accessible. So yes, there's changes afoot. <laughs> um, will the, the, the patios in our streets remain there? Maybe they might in many areas of the country, they are permanent, um, but perhaps they're more temporary, if anything. Regardless, when they do recede from our streets and go back to you know, the regular patio spaces, our transportation, at least our urban transportation landscape, will have changed for the better. So it is a mm -hmm. step forward. But while the pandemic lasts, there are competing need for the resources. For example, you mentioned that there are people are craving for more mode of transportation and that include transit. While we see the ridership plummeted, but TTC have announced that they put more money to increase the transit. That's very interesting. Fact. Do you want to talk more about that? The basics is transit authorities have to move maximum amount of people, but they have to do it safely in the interest of the ridership. If the transit system is going to move people, we need more buses to do that or more vehicles to do that because we simply can't fill the vehicles to capacity anymore. That's a fact. So we're going to have to invest in that. The systems will are required to put more out there um, because they're mandated to provide equitable access to transit across the city. Um, so it's a big challenge because how are they going to be able to continue to provide that equitable access across the city if the funds are dwindling? Ridership goes down. They're not making enough funds. They're not making enough money. So it's going to cost more to put more buses and more, more, more service out there. It, it is a problem. How, how are transit systems going to survive in the future? It's a great question. 
I think that trans systems, transit systems will need to adapt right, to the current system or the current pandemic. And those changes will continue to persist far beyond the pandemic. One of the things that transit systems are doing nowadays is the idea of more on-demand transit. And this is really neat because if you look at the way transit systems were traditionally designed, you had fixed route transit, right? You go outside, you stand at a bus stop, the bus will come at a predetermined time and take you along pretty much if your city is a grid, a straight line. With on-demand transit, it's the idea is a little bit more like the um, like the ride hailing companies that are out there where you can kind of call someone and they will come to your front door and then take you to a very specific place you need to be. Now, of course, transit's not going to do that. It's far too expensive to implement. But there is a hybrid out there where you can actually say, well, I, I need to make this trip. And so therefore, I probably need to take that fixed route that already mm -hmm. exists in my plan. And, and, I'm going to, and that's going to be part of my trip. And so therefore, I'm going to somehow make the transit system aware that's probably done through apps that I need to make that trip. And therefore the transit system's aware of that. And they're probably going to utilize a bus that's already on that path to pick me up. Why this works is because if nobody's demanding anything, then there's no need to send out a bus. Of course, that idea only works if everybody uses on-demand transit. So there is kind of um, a balance that's obviously necessary here. And to bring it all back to your, to, to the reason we're here today, Guan, about this idea of geographic thinking is how does a transit system find that balance? How does a transit system say that, well, this route is going to be fixed and I'm going to run on a schedule and this route's going to be on demand and there's got to be something in between. How do they make that determination? A lot of it comes down to geographic thinking. Yeah, exactly. Where people, yeah, where are people beginning their journeys? Where are people ending their journeys? How do they want to get there? There has to be some way to understand that. Well, fact is we have the data. Transit systems have a plethora of data about their riders' daily habits. We just have to make sense of it. And we can. It sounds like the diverse demand of people needing to travel differently, that requires a much deeper understanding of not only how the transportation and transit system is designed or should be designed in the future, but also the people who are going to use the system, where they are located, how old they are, what's their comfort level of using technologies, and all of that geography play can play a huge role in our understanding. And speaking of conflict of interest and competing demands, you mentioned something about curbside management and you Talk a little bit about that reopening, you know, patio space and expanding to the sidewalks. Can you dive a little bit more into that topic? What is curbside space and why is it um, such a highly demanded space? Thanks, Guan. Curbside space management. I know it's a mouthful. Um, it's, it's becoming... It's becoming a hot topic. I don't know if it's a hot topic yet, but I, I like to look ahead to these sort of things. Um, a, a little bit of an anecdotal experience. I, I used to be a courier in my old days. So I have a lot of experience in driving around the city and finding addresses and destinations and very, um, I guess, it, it's stressful to, to leave your car in a no parking zone to go drop off a package and hope that the car is still there when you get back. Um, it's, it's fun too. I, I actually really enjoyed that work, but 20 years ago, we never had um, 
delivery companies delivering food all the time to us. We never had um, companies who were delivering our packages that we ordered online all the time to us. So because of the proliferation of those type of services, their demand for that curbside has gone up dramatically. Now, there is, um, there's a caveat there, right? Because the demand for the curbside hasn't gone up dramatically consistently across everywhere. It's in very specific locations, perhaps where there's a split office and high density residential tower, right? In which case you might be in the middle of a downtown core and you might only have two spaces uh, to make these two, two spaces or actually most of these uh, locations have maybe one courier spot where a single vehicle can stop and, and make a delivery. That's not going to work if you have, you know, 400 residents who are all ordering their dinner at the same time. So we need some capability, which it inherently needs to be dynamic so that we can allow couriers, transit systems, people dropping off their goods and packages and parking all to coexist. That's what curbside management really is. There's gonna be far greater need for management of that curbside more effectively. Now, who manages that curbside? It's the mm. urban, it's the city, and it's the city planners, right? They're the ones who deem that this location is a no parking zone or this location is parking between you know, um, two in the afternoon and three in the afternoon or, or whatever it is. And other times it's a tollway zone. Those bylaws are made by the city. How can the city become, or how can the city allocate that space more intelligently and more dynamically as demand changes throughout the day? I think that's the key question here. How do they make those determinations as to which, what, what areas in our urban environment should that curbside be and when, actually, I should say, what, which, what and when or where and when should curbs be allocated for courier spots or transit spots, for example, or um, ride sharing spots or bike sharing spots? Like, like, how do we make those decisions? Geographic thinking. And again, we can be because we have the ability to, to make these types of analyses to find out where those dollars will be best spent, which curbs should be best allocated for different purposes and when. Are there leading examples of cities around the world who have been leading researches and policy makings in this regard? Not so much in this regard. There's, um, there's currently a lot of discussion going on for curbside management. Some of those discussions are about monetization. So in other words, um, you know, should we charge fees rather than fines for people to stop at a, at a particular location along a curb? So for example, if you stop in a no parking zone and you get caught, you're going to get a ticket at worst or at best. At worst, your, your car is going to get towed. Right. So that's that's an example of a fine. But you got to get caught for that. So and, and some people take the risk. And I, I did. I know I did. Many of us do. Um, an alternative way to do that is to just eliminate the need of, you know, the potential to get caught and just charge a fee. So it's not wrong. To, per se, to park in a no parking zone. But if you wish to do that, it's going to cost you this much, right? You know, rather than risking a, a ticket or, or, or a towed car, we could say, well, I'm going to pay for that 15 minute allocation or that five minute allocation. And, and I can reassure that my car is going to be there. Mm -hmm. But speaking of more intelligent and more collaborative way of planning for transportations, what are some of the critical steps? that you think um, that we would like to see more happening in the future, like transforming from where we are here today and what the future transportation will look like for 
the post-COVID society, what are the critical steps that we need to reflect on and do better at? Oh, goodness. Um, well, one of the most, I think one of the critical steps is making sure that people have options, right? Transportation, in my view, is not about simply getting from A to B. It's about freedom of mobility, right? So if, if I'm here and I want to get there, that might be my need right now. Um, but maybe tomorrow or later on in the day, my need may be different. Also, we all make decisions on whether or not we're actually going to make the trip depending on the options that we have available, right? We choose our jobs often. I mean, if we're lucky enough, we have the ability to choose our jobs based on where we live and where that where our job would take us. So we make our daily decisions based on, um, on what's available, the freedom of mobility. So if, if we had lots of options in terms of transport, lots of ways to get around, then suddenly it doesn't become a barrier anymore and we have true freedom of mobility. And then the rest of our life decisions or social decisions or economic decisions become focused on that aspect rather than the transportation aspect. Transportation should be transparent. We, we should have to think about it. That's the utopia anyways, right? But that's not the reality. So I, I think one of the key things in order to get there would be, first of all, we have to make sure that our urban environments, at least we're starting with our urban environments, have um, a lot to offer in terms of options of transportation. The next thing is that we really need to understand the people who use those options. Transit systems do this all the time. They do do ridership surveys. And frankly, uh, it's it's a bit appalling at some of the ways it's done. Sometimes it's done using paper, you know, someone standing at a bus stop and answering questions on a survey with a paper and clipboard. There's, There's many more modern ways to do this nowadays, but it doesn't hide the fact that that information is needed. Transit systems want to get that information because it's extremely useful to understand how people use the system. If you look at um, ride hailing organizations, right? When you, when, you, when you hail your ride using your app, that data is held by that organization because they want to understand your patterns. They want to know where you like to go, where, you, where you've been. And from a macro sense where people around the city prefer to go. So all of that is useful and we are collecting the data on that. Are we making best use of it? Perhaps not just yet, but I think that's one of the critical things is is understanding how people really need to get around. So you you mentioned a term unified transportation system. What what does the term mean and what unifies it? Like, is that something you know, what you just mentioned about understanding the people who are using the transportation, who are using the transit and giving them options. Is that part of it? Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. I'll, I'll, I'll try to clarify that. Um, so, so when I started my career in transportation, I was working primarily as an engineering uh, as, as an engineer for um, state U.S. State Department of Transportation. So uh, I very quickly understood that although a particular u- state in the U.S. is interested in state highways, all of the other roads that also existed in that state were of no interest to them, right, because they're not under their management. And the same philosophy applies, slightly different, but the same philosophy applies to Canada. When you look at the different levels of government, they're all interested in only the transportation infrastructure that they manage. And it kind of makes sense because that's where the money comes from. Those, those levels of government generate, or I shouldn't say generate, but they, they put 
certain funding towards their infrastructure to make sure that it's well maintained and approved. And that's all the jurisdiction they have. But if you continue that thinking and look at all the other players within the transportation space or all the other users of the transportation system, it's not just roads, right? It's pathways as well. Today, it's more than often, it's going to be cycling pathways. It's going to be um, the curbs, the curbside. We just talked about that. It's going to be the transit system who have dedicated transit ways, right? So there's many different um, there's many different contributors and there's many different consumers of the transportation system. Yet, the way we fund and maintain our transportation systems are still very siloed, right? We look at uh, individual highways and we don't care about what's around them when it comes to funding and maintaining those highways. Typically, um, we look at transit systems. They're very interested in the, the, the infrastructure that's used for transit, but they're not going to be concerned with anything that, uh, that falls outside of that. Um, so this siloed thinking arguably is, is how we got to where we are, which is fine because of the way our funding system works. But this idea about unified management, unified transportation management, it's not necessarily the melding of all that because the way that our governments work, the way that our funding mechanisms work, it wouldn't, it wouldn't allow for that. However, through technology, we can define, let's say, let's call it a foundation, right? Let's call it a foundation where you can still have these funding mechanisms to allow for maintenance on just, you know, provincial highways or on just cycling paths or on just walking paths. We can do that. But because they all exist on this common foundation, which I, I, I coin unified transportation management, suddenly mm -hmm. the funding and changes that one department does with one piece of infrastructure becomes visible and you can act, it becomes visible to other organizations or other departments within that same organization. And then they can make their decisions based on some of the other decisions that other folks are making. So basically what this is, it's, it's the ability to collaborate and provide communication across these silos so that when we make our funding, uh, maintenance and capital decisions on infrastructure, we're making it more intelligently because of what's happening around us and on the other infrastructure that we may not be looking after, but has an impact on what we do. At the end of the day, if, if we want to improve mobility, freedom of mobility in our, in our environments, in our urban environments, let's say, and we want to say, well, we're going to add more cycling paths, we're going to add more footpaths, and we're going to become more strategic with where we actually expand our roadways. Well, all of those systems intertwine one another in an urban environment. And so we'd be remiss if we don't start thinking about our individual pieces amongst the bigger whole. So by the sound of like it, the underlying technology that is going to unify different stakeholders is infused with the thinking and also data of geography, of where things are, and making that data publicly available and transparent to different stakeholders. And that sounds like the foundation piece of how we're going to move forward even further, accelerated by this pandemic. Would you Absolutely. Yeah, we're, we're all living together in, in wherever we live, whether it be an urban or rural setting, right? There's other people that you interact with. And I'll say it again, but transportation is needs to be transparent. We don't want to think about it as a regular person, but it's absolutely critical that it operates 
you know, fluidly, transparently, so that we can go about our daily lives. And the only way that's going to happen is for us who are planning the systems is to put a lot of effort into it and make sure that we think about it together, collaboratively, because we are in this together. Thanks, Arif. Really appreciate you sharing your thoughts with us today. You just heard from Arif Rafiq. A transportation expert who helped many transportation organizations globally to plan, manage, and improve their information system. This podcast is brought to you by Esri Canada, a technology company that empowers people and organizations by the science of where. We'd love to hear your story of geographical thinking. Email us at podcast@esri.ca. We'll see you next time. Bye.